music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield. You're listening to the Hivecast, and today's guest, really happy to have here, is Chris Novoselic. Chris. Welcome, man. It was really fun to introduce you yesterday at the CBGB's Festival. Now that they've resurrected, the, you know, the CB's brand, not just T-shirts, but they're doing this New York Festival. And uh, it was your, your your speech yesterday was very cool. And it, you really didn't need any kind of reading thing because you really memorized what you wanted to say. It just came out. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Matt. <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, a lot of those themes, I've it's kind of the same things I speak about like somebody threw me a kind of an oddball question about banking or something and i'm like it's out of the scope of <laughs> it's out of my scope you know so i was, I was just talking you know talking about music and my experience with nirvana and history and, and it was about the history of association in the punk rock scene and how important that was and how bands had these support networks and this infrastructure we just didn't do it by ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. That's scene. That's what the scene was. That's what makes it. That's what made it special. How it grew organically. Let's go back to you as a kid. Now you were born in Compton, right? Right. I was born in Compton, California. Straight out of Compton, and then Straight out of Compton. <laughs> yeah, my parents were uh, immigrated from Croatia or what was Yugoslavia, and then they uh, they separately. Then they met here. We and I grew up in San Pedro, California. Mike Wattsburg. And then in 1979, I my family moved to Aberdeen, Washington, and that's how I've been in Washington ever since. I had I've lived in different places. Like I lived in Yugoslavia in 1980. I lived in uh, Phoenix, Arizona in 1986. I lived in uh, Tacoma, Olympia, Seattle, and now I'm just pretty much stay put in uh, Southwest Washington. I'm, in the hills and the woods above the Pacific Ocean and the Columbia River. But most of my life has just been kind of cruising up and down I-5 yeah. <laughs> on the West Coast. So a lot, lot with the bands. We'd go between Baja, California and British Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way. I mean, at least you're on a straight route and you can yeah. get more places that way. Yeah. Makes yeah. it get cost effective with gas and everything yeah, else. Yeah. The Sis cruising through the Siskiyous, Northern California, San Joaquin Valley. I'm yeah. Now tell me about being a kid and, and how you got really interested in music. It was your dad, right? It was yeah, I was my my dad would had his man cave where it was a garage back then, and he'd like work on old bugs and he we'd listen to the radio and we he had this tape those four tracks which were before the A track, they were kind of the same cartridge kind of thing. But they only had literally like four or five songs on them, didn't they? At that point? Mm, yeah, they I. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of. Didn't seem like they were like. He, I don't know if he had these compilations or what what they were, but I remember hearing like you know all the Dick Dale big songs, the Chuck Berry big songs, like Rolling Stone, or just listening to AM radio. And I just remember, I remember all those songs, and I really liked them, and I was really really into them. So I always liked music, and then I got into AM radio. I would listen to ninety three KHJ in california it was a big top 40 radio and then i got a little older and i switched to like kmet 
I got it to FM. Yeah. And I was got the it real in, Don Steele on KH, right? Uh, yep. The real Don Steele. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, he, right. He's kind of like the the West Coast version of Cousin Brucey, people know from ABC. Yeah, and there were all those big songs like, you know, like Daniel by uh, Elton John, you know, it was like in heavy rotation. Or um, Fame by David Bowie, like we'd be sitting in the car. My parents had this old Chevy Impala. It was a SS Impala, 1964. It was a Compton car, 64 Impala. And we'd listen to the AM radio, and, and that song Fame would come on. And then the ending is so cool with that voice kind of oscillating from high to low. Like, fame, 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 fame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'd always crank it up. I'm like, yeah, this is so cool, man. And um, then I got an FM radio, and, and, and I started to discover, like, the heavy rock bands but my first big band was Kiss and I got the record Kiss Alive and Dress to Kill I was in the 6th grade I got an 8 track tape of Dress to Kill and I just wore it out listening to it over and over again yeah, hearing like room service, two room timer, service, two timer. <laughs> ladies in waiting, getaway. Oh, that stuff's great. Yeah, rock, rock bottoms, rock so bottom. Yeah, like all the tunes. And um, I got in a kiss, and I was like, uh, for Halloween, we, uh, I was uh, Gene the Demon. We went trick or treating, and, um, and I got into like Black Sabbath and Aerosmith, and then I started it. Discover, and it's like 1979, 1980, like, you know, B-52s, the Ramones, Blondie, and so I never, there was never like a new wave of music. It was like all wave. Like, it was all just, just, just like good music. Yeah, I liked everything. Yeah, just like, it, it was all exciting and new. And uh, I got bored with music for a while there in the early 80s, kind of the living in Aberdeen and like some of the metal the party scene there and the, a lot of them i won't mention any bands but they just didn't seem like it was really compelling then i then i worked after high school i was going to high school and then after school i would have to um i worked at the community college like buffing the floors then i had to have take some credits to graduate so then i took classes and then i worked at a taco bell so I really didn't have a social life, but I wasn't really interested in that whole party scene or whatever. And, and I would buy records from this place called Dill Secondhand Store in Aberdeen, which was this amazing place. They had a bear trap on the wall, which was like four feet wide, you know, yeah. or this chainsaw that's like, you know, 20 foot long chainsaw with like this big motor. It was crazy. The tools that they had in there was that industrial logging town of Aberdeen. And they had records. They had thousands and thousands of records. And I combed through every one. Like, I got Electric Ladyland, Jimi Hendrix with the, the Naked Lady cover for $2. It was in great shape. Polygram. Like uh, the import and, version. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Like the things that came through there, nobody really had, really got it or something. I don't know. But I, I, I still have all those records that I bought there. What are some of the other ones that you love that you bought that you <laughs> Oh my, I got Beatles Rubber Soul on Parlophone English. Yeah. And it had different songs on it. Which yeah, when you really realized cool. that the American Record Company had pillaged <laughs> and taken songs off each yeah. one to start their own record. And it sounded better, yeah. you know? And we bought like the turntable there, like this weird 70s kind of dome turntable. And I got a new stylus for it. It worked great. And um, what, are, what are some other records that I got at Dill Secondhand Store? Just, you know, Johnny Cash records and Patsy Cline records. The, the old original ones, like on Decca and uh, Columbia. Yeah. Like, 
you know, Bob Dylan records, mono Dylan. It's crazy. And like, great stuff. Just. Yeah, great stuff. And some of it was worn out. You know, when you on a record you get to the the last song and it's kind of fuzzy. It, it didn't didn't look scratched. It had like, it had like that uh, what they call like a needle burn on it. Yeah, right? that kind because of thing. the grooves get thinner. No, the grooves get um more compressed towards yeah. the end of the record because of the the circumference of the groove and it just kind of that's how you tell a bad record anyway um <laughs> and uh so i was working at taco bell and these freakers walk in there and it was buzz osborne and matt lucan who went on to be the bass player in mud honey and mike dillard was a was the drummer and they were in this band called the melvins from montesano i was aware of buzz because a couple years before i was reading the student paper out of Montesano High. Just this girl was from Montesano. And then there was an editorial by Buzz. <laughs> he was denouncing like arena rock concerts. He goes, I don't go to arena rock concerts. It's just like the stage is too far. I'm looking at this ant. You know, I'm up in the bleachers. I don't see anything. I go to punk rock shows and there you can be right in front of the band and it's a better experience. So he was advocating rock, punk rock. Nobody really cared, but there was a division. Like people were anti-punk, you know. There really were then. People don't realize now. <laughs> I remember, uh, was it Chris Robinson from the Black Crow saying to me, "Hey, we never had a mall where we had like a punk uh, T-shirts at the time." He goes, "We had to make them ourselves." Yeah, we had to make them ourselves. Matt Lucan made made like a Dead <laughs> Kennedys T-shirt, and and then so there was this club in Olympia. So I met these fellows, and like it was really interesting. And so like Buzz was a uh, advocate evangelist of punk rock and is trying to re recruit converts and so he lent me this record flipper and like black flag and i listened to this flipper record like what is this it's your sex bomb and ha ha, ha sex bomb and ha 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 but def that generic flipper like this the album just, yeah the album it's just yellow this, and black <laughs> yeah it was a generic record and it's like it's this just sounds like, is this live? Like, what kind of production is this? It was just so gritty and so weird. And and then I, I listened to it like, wow, this is weird. And I listened to it again. And like, oh, you know, it's, it's, this is kind of interesting. And then the third time, on the third listen, I was laying on a waterbed. And I listened to it and it was like this, whoa, this is like the coolest music ever. Ever. Like I was drawn into it. It was magical. And this music is like, this isn't some weird like punk rock subgenre. This is just as good a music as like Led Zeppelin 4 or, you know, anything in the history of rock and roll. It's just as good. And it speaks to me. And so then that's, that's when I was hooked after that and, and American hardcore music. And um, so I started to hang out with those guys and I had a guitar and I played guitar, but they had their own band and they rehearsed a lot, and so I kind of hang out at the rehearsals, and we do things like drink beer, and I don't know. What young kids do? What yeah, young guys what, do? Young what teens? Young guys, yeah, yeah, what teens do? Yeah. So <laughs> we did that, and uh, and it's amazing. You know, I was thinking about that whole thing. I remember going to rehearsal for my high school graduation in a homemade Generation X T-shirt yeah. that I made. You know? So we we were like. We went to this club because in Olympia I had the Evergreen State College, and so when you, whenever you have a school, there's people you know tuned into punk rock, especially a, a liberal arts college like uh, Evergreen. And so, like, we were standing in front of the club, and then these kind of like the rocker kids and like the Camaros and like the feathered hair, they had this idea like, let's go egg the punk rockers because 
you could be denounced as a punk by mainstream people like punk was wrong or or they thought you know like <laughs> some of the things we heard were ridiculous about punk rock music that's all just about you know it's like it was bad and just yeah. aggro or whatever it was really a, it was very much an us versus them feeling yeah. back then yeah. i knew it i mean because there was a time i remember the thing that separated some of the guys i went to school with when i was a kid in high school was when i got the first two pistol singles on import that i you know mowed lawns to buy and also got the first ramones album the first dead boys record and it was like the guys that like you know the Bon Air, Bon Scott era, ACDC, and you know Thin Lizzy, and, and that some of them liked both, and and Kiss, and others like were like, what is this shit? You know what I mean? So they were yeah. like, they couldn't fathom the Ramones, which is now played at stadiums everywhere. You know what I mean? And those, those I know those rocker kids were like really into the in the early eighties. There was a like. Uh, rock music was really slick, like really kind of super produced and glossy you know like i love the first two aussie records blizzard of oz and diary of a madman yeah that was like the best i think the best of that music yeah van halen was putting out great records too but thin lizzy and you know up until you know chinatown was the last one i loved actually what year was that um i'm trying to remember what year chinatown was because before that was Black Rose, a rock legend. Those are great. I love those records. Yeah. But, um, you know, and I obviously, but, you know, I was one of those guys like you who liked, you know, everything. Yeah. Whatever it was good, it was good. But there was definitely, it was, it was, divi- it was definitely divisive back then. Tell me about meeting Kurt for the first time in Aberdeen. Is that where you met him or was it in another? Yeah, where did I meet Kurt? I just kind of, he would, well, there was this scene at, uh, the Mike Dillard left the Melvins and he, they needed a drummer. And so Buzz asked me if I knew some drummers, and there were two drummers that I knew. One was Aaron Burkhart, and another one was Dale Crover. Yeah. And Dale Crover was like 16 years old, and you know, so we went to his. He lived with his parents, and his parents were a lot older. Like they had Dale's brothers, siblings are like a lot older than he is. You know. So it might have been an accident. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and know? so, but they were they were. They're great people, and they uh, they let the Melvins rehearse in this back room there by the alley, like on they're in Aberdeen, and uh, so it just you know you hear the drum set a block away. Nobody seemed to complain, and so that would attract like, the stragglers, and so you know we'd just go listen to the Melvins practice, and they were really serious practice. So they you know they settled on Dale, and and Dale with the Melvins they were like. They were really serious. Like they would practice, they'd go through their set twice a day. Like and so, their people would hang out. But once they started playing, it was it was really serious. And then, like the Melvins went on, had to leave on tour. They got this. It was amazing that they were going to go on this punk rock tour, national tour. So like, Dale told me the story when he was like, <laughs> he went to the counselor at high school, and it's just like, oh, I have this opportunity to tour with this rock band. And so they looked at his grades, and it's just like. English is like really poor grade, math, really poor grade. And he had like three band classes, A, A, A. Like he was in a band, you know, band and yeah. orchestra and all those classes. And the teacher's just like, go tour. Yeah, they told him to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, go <laughs> to the tour. It was a good thing. He ended up, yeah. he ended up getting yeah. more of an education. Yeah, Absolutely. he did. It's just like, this is what you're, you're getting all A's. Go do it. You're not, you know. You're gonna excel here, and um, well, there's this one kid, uh, Kurt, and um, he was 
down on his luck. Like he was, he lived at, with these folks, the Schillingers, and he didn't have a place to live. And then he lived in, I had him in my van. He, I said he could live in my van. I had this Volkswagen van. And so I hooked up this extension cord and this heater. So he was all, cause it was a camper van. So he could stay there, you yeah. know, so he was comfortable. Then he could, you know, we, he'd hang out and you know, use the bathroom in the apartment and things. Cause I had this apartment with my girlfriend. It was a hundred dollars a month. Yeah. We paid rent, you know, and Aberdeen. <laughs> it was yeah. like, it was so cheap to live. And, uh, and then, we went to Kurt's mom's house, and there was a guitar amp there, this PV Tweed amp he had, and he had this Univox guitar. He got from Reed, this Reed fellow who was in this band called the Beachcombers, which was like a Northwest garage band from the 60s, and he lived way out in the woods. They lived way out, out there in North River, and they were, they were evangelical Christians. So I don't think Kurt really fit in with yeah. that. <laughs> and um, so, hey, let's start a band. And um, then I I knew somebody who even this, this place called Brooklyn, Washington, which is way, way, way out in the woods. And there's no electricity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's spring and spring water. And he had a bass and an amp, and he let me borrow it. And then we needed a drummer, so we went to Dale. Not today. We went to Aaron, Aaron Burkhardt, and we and we were watching the Melvins for so long and how serious their rehearsals were and that ethic, and we wanted that too. So Kurt got a job. He was cleaning hotels in Ocean Shores, which is on the like a resort on the beach in Washington coast. So he had he had an apart a house. He had this little crappy little house. It didn't have a refrigerator. I remember. And then there was this old lady in South Aberdeen that my dad got remarried he married her granddaughter and so this house was like just full of stuff from like decades and decades it was amazing that they never threw anything out so they had this old refrigerator from the 50s yeah (laughs) then i went and got a seal for it because it was kind of rotten and it worked and we so we got kurt a refrigerator and he was happy about that then he had this weird house see kurt was he was a (laughs) he was a an artist he was always expressing himself so he would do these scooby-doo cartoons you know like he lived in this apartment for a while he defaced the hallway with these just pornographic scooby-doo it was like with like penises (laughs) and scooby and shaggy (laughs) like (laughs) it was like really (laughs) it was really bad but it was well done it's like it was it was shaggy from so he was good at illustrating. He was an amazing illustrator. He's very talented. And then he would do like, these kids would go to the cemetery and like steal like the Virgin Mary statues and things. And then Kurt would like make them really weird, like paint their faces. Like the Virgin has a bloody face or these black, like Alice Cooper eyes. And this was, yeah. it was amazing. And then of course he, he would put this on the, uh, <laughs> he would he would put this on like the front porch of the house and so then this this girl came walking over and she goes hi and she was looking for some kid or a dog or something like that or she had a question about something that was going on in the neighborhood i'm like oh well, how are you or whatever she goes you know the kids say that you're all devil worshipers and i'm just <laughs> like mm, uh, yeah we are you know it's just like get out of here anyway but we would rehearse in that house like every day we did that and we were you know kurt if he wasn't doodling or if he wasn't 
uh, he'd make, he'd do sculpture, he'd do paintings, and he was writing songs. He was, uh, he was just obsessed with writing songs. He was compelled to, to do it, and so he'd have a, a riff and a, and a song, and we would just bash it out. And then Aaron really didn't work, kind of the, again, you know when you, when you talk about that divide? Yeah. And it was like, so Aaron didn't work. It kind of got, there was this ugly incident, not with between us, but with some other people that we didn't like that. I'll just leave it at that. And that we just weren't comfortable with, with Aaron anymore. Though he's a great drummer. And so we needed to find another drummer. And one of the things was like, well, we can't like, we got to make sure that somebody gets this punk rock thing because we don't want to put time into reprogramming somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you had already made, gone from A to B. Yeah. You guys had rehearsed that much to get that far. Yeah. So you wanted somebody who came in and had the ethic, had the DIY ethic, wanted to work, understood. And knew, the, knew what punk rock was. Like all of a sudden, because you, you had mainstream people, like not only are they joining this band of weirdos, there's like, there's this scene and this ethic that they don't understand. They're like mainstream people. And so that's like, we have to, we don't want to put the time into reprogramming somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was a divide. It was a, there was an attitude and perspective. There was a gap there and it was a true subculture. And so you needed to kind of ease people into it. And then we found, we went through, well, we, we toured with Dale. We had some shows. And um, we toured with Dale, and we we I moved to Tacoma for a while, and the the band just fell apart. And Kurt moved to Olympia, and he did his thing. Then he wrote me a letter saying, "Let's make a I have money to pay for a recording. Will you play bass?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'll do it." And I was working at a I was an industrial painter because I got this. I wanted to get out of Aberdeen, and so I had a job painting factories. I mean, it was a logging town, Aberdeen, basically. Yeah, it was. And But then I got a job, like, in Tacoma. I lived in Tacoma, and I was painting. Well, I'd go to paint aircraft factories, a, a aluminum smelter, a paper mill, just doing all this, like, industrial painting. I, I, I don't know. Again, it was so mainstream, and I was doing gigs on the weekends. We recorded, Kurt and I and Dale recorded that demo, and um, we were, like, who was the, who recorded that demo with you? Jack and Dino. Yeah, because he was yeah. the go-to guy. I just saw Jack. We were just doing some recording Tuesday. Oh, that's great. <laughs> he came down to my place with Dale. See the things. Eventually he worked on. with John too, right? And then John, you know, the one. Uh, what's John's last name? I'm spacing on it, but he did some demos with you guys later. Oh yeah, we were. That was at the radio station at Evergreen State yeah. College. Yeah. And yeah, so we'd do that. We'd play it. We'd play at Evergreen concert uh, on the radio, or they'd have these like dorm parties, or, or there, there would be uh, some event, school event. And then there was a there was a scene. There was like Tacoma had the Community World Theater, which was an old um, Union Hall, and uh, <clears throat> we played in Seattle. We never played the Metropolis. I finally remember that name, but there was like the Vogue, and there were then there were bands like. Mudhoney and Tad and the Soundgarden was already huge. Like they were like, they were the big band. And we went to see Soundgarden at the Central Tavern. They just released Screaming Life. And they, they did that song, Nothing to Say. And it was just like, wow. Yeah, great Cornell track. is just like, you know, intense. But I remember seeing, oh, they had Gorilla Gardens. And I remember seeing Soundgarden before that, where like Chris had a new, like a flock of seagulls, new wave hairdo. Yeah, and he was on drums, 
and then Kim's just had really short hair. He's like this Indian dude. He had this Gretsch guitar with this totally dripping with chorus. He had so much chorus on that pedal, but they were they were cool. They had these riffs and they were kind of spooky. They were rock, and the drummer had the pipes, you know. Then I saw him again, and it was like they had Matt on drums, and then Chris was out front, and, and he grew his hair out. Yeah, then <laughs> <laughs> he would like never wear shirts. So we'd call that the full Cornell. Yeah, he would do the full Cornell. He's been your friend. You could you've been friends with those guys. For oh a yeah, time. they're I love a great them. band. I yeah. love them so much. I mean, yeah, God, I'm so <laughs> glad they're back together. And I I've heard one song, "Live um, to Rise." "Live to Rise" is amazing. Thank you, Soundgarden, for making great rock music. Yeah, and just listen. You know, you know what was cool is like I was. Uh, I did some work with with Dave. You got to ask Dave what we did though, because he told me not to tell anybody. Uh, Dave Hill. Yeah, and so like. Is this around the, uh, the Sound City documentary? Yeah, it's around on? the Sound City documentary. So I went to like <laughs> Pasadena to see like Ben and Kim, um, because they were in L.A. making a video for Live to Rise, and so like we went to this hotel room and we were like having some beers and like they were playing their new song and I was playing our new song. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was kind of like the old days. It was like, wow, we haven't done this like in 20 years. Like, here's, <laughs> what are you guys doing? Soundgarden what are you up to? Nirvana guys hanging out. Yeah, hanging this out. Like, great. what are you doing? Like, here's our new song. And I'm like, listening to like, wow, that's great. Yeah. That's a great riff. And like, that's a good chorus. And they're like, they're like listening to, and like, here's my CD. And we put it in. Like, whoa. Like, yeah. So it was kind of fun. Speaking know? of which, it was great to see you and Dave get back together uh, to do I Should Have Known on the, uh, on, Wasted light, wasted light. Oh, me, a accordion dude. Yeah, yeah. That's my bag now. Yeah. <laughs> and you did it. What's wild is when you did it in Jersey on stage. I saw you there. I saw you on the side of the stage from where I was, I was sitting, right up over the side. Um, I didn't get to come down and say hi to you that night because I, oh. yeah. I, I actually ended up leaving right after the encore. But I was going to come and say hello. But it was great to see you up there. And uh, you didn't. You played on a different song. You didn't even play. I on know. I um. <laughs> The Foo Fighters are amazing. They really are great. I, yeah. I love them. And the new record's phenomenal. It is. Yeah, it's really good. There's yeah. good songs on there. And they put on a great rock show. They're just a good rock band. It's no frills. Yeah. It's just kind of It's amazing. straight ahead. Now, getting back to that, getting, so you and Kurt, when you, at that period of time, all right, when you, when, when you guys started out, when you, before you did Bleach, tell me about how you guys ended up getting the deal with Sub Pop and how that thing all came down. Obviously. Well, you know, Bruce Pavitt had a, he, he had a column in some publication. It wasn't Seattle Weekly, which you written for in the past. It was something else. Uh, it might have been. It, it might have been out of Olympia. It was called Sub Pop. And that was Bruce and Jonathan was his partner, and they started this label, Sub Pop. And... Um, there was a Seattle scene at the time, and so we would drive up. We didn't live in Seattle. We couldn't afford to live in Seattle. Like, I lived in Tacoma, and Kurt lived in Olympia, and, like, Chad. So we had Chad Channing was on drums. Chad lived on Bainbridge Island. So we would always, like, we'd always be driving in our van. Like, we'd drive all the way to, like, Kitsap County or wherever. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Sleep on the hardwood floors and, you know, that kind of thing. And we'd practice here, practice there. We'd bum practice places. We'd practice in Olympia. We'd practice in Bainbridge. We'd practice in Seattle. We'd practice in, I don't know, did we ever practice in Tacoma at that time? But, and we'd play gigs, you know, and we were just kind of living the rock life. I, I quit my job and uh, just kind of lived the bum musician lifestyle, which I wanted to do. And we could do, you know, we were surviving. 
and um, so there were there were these shows. There'd be shows like I think there's this club, The Vogue, and it was like Thursday nights would be like the sub pop night or grunge night or something like that. And so you go catch Mud Honey or Blood Circus, Tad, Green and, River too. At that point? Uh, Green no. River was over yeah. at that point. It was yeah. Mud Honey because yeah, yeah, that was a big deal when when Green River split. Yeah. Because they would do cool covers, like Ain't Nothing to Do by the Dead Boys and Queen Bitch by Yeah, Bobby. yeah. You know, they'd, uh, yeah, and then Mark was like this front man. He was trying to shock people. and um, But Mud Honey was different. They had Matt because Matt had left the Melvins, and so they picked up Matt. And they had Danny Peters, amazing drummer. Danny is so good with the snare drum. It's yeah. amazing. And he played – we borrowed Danny for the Sliver single. And, he played uh, on Sliver, yeah. Yeah, he played on Sliver. Yeah, we borrowed their drummer. <laughs> we recorded that song. Was uh, Tad were recording a record, and they were on a lunch break. And we went in there for like an hour, and we recorded it and left. Yeah. Said hi, goodbye. What a great single. Too. Yeah, what a great single. And so that was just like, you know, again, it's, it was just, and see how supportive everybody was, like Jack and Tad and Mud Honey Danny. Everybody like everybody was, was like everybody was trying to help each other. That's what yeah. It was. There wasn't was like it? all this animosity or like and it wasn't rivalries. selfish or territorial either. No, it wasn't. It was very supportive. See, yeah. so that was a good good deal, and people came to each other's shows, and we drank too much, and, you know. Like, yeah, just it was all about beer. It's like the Northwest was about beer. Wow. And then, so so Bleach, then Sliver, because I remember I was doing DJing at the radio station and music director doing afternoons mm -hmm. in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And I got the single, and I was like, I remember actually adding it and playing it on the radio there, you know, before Nevermind, because I loved it. And I was, uh, you know, a fan of, like, Love, Buzz, and School Day. The, uh, the shocking blue cover that you guys did. Ba -da -da, ba -da -da. Oh, I yeah. bought that record at Dill Secondhand Store. Is that why you guys ended up covering it? Yeah, because, you know, you like for a dollar, you'd, like, buy these records and you saw venus was on it so you're like i'll buy venus. shocking blue right you know and a lot of times you buy these obscure 60 bands and they're just not very good but you know like oh venus is the song and the rest is like filler it's like yeah that is actually a very good record from the finish to to the end and yeah we would listen to it over and over again and we just started i think i busted out that riff love buzz and then kurt got into it and he just did his own thing to it you yeah know? and then we just got, we just kind of, we did it. It was cool. I mean, it's a great version. Yeah, buzz. And that's why, uh, I, that's one of the things that got me very excited. So let's move ahead to meeting Dave and how you guys ended up. Dave, of course, was playing with Scream at the time. Um, how did you guys hook up with Dave? And, well, know? Chad had some, like, problems, some health problems and things, and it just wasn't really working out. So we had a difficult conversation with Chad and just said, we're just going to move forward you know, I have a good rap with Chad. Whenever I see him, it's nice. We just kind of naturally hang out. Like, yeah. we know each other for, you know, hey, yeah. Chad, you know, just that's how it went. And, you know, and then we got cut him in. Like, Chad gets royalties and things, you know. Yeah. So we didn't, we weren't bad at Chad. He yeah. wasn't bad at us either. Just, I don't know, just didn't work, work out. And so we didn't have a drummer. Yeah, then we had Danny Peters for a while. And we tried to these other dudes, but it just didn't seem right. And so, Sub Pop was going to do a deal with like Columbia, and then we were like, Hey man, we're going to be on a major label but still on Sub Pop. And so we thought there was going to be like, we just weren't comfortable with like, why don't we just get our own deal? Like, all these other bands are doing it. And so it was Susan Silver who was the manager of it was Chris's ex wife as well. Yeah, Chris's ex wife. Too. Yeah, she's a nice, neat lady. Yeah. 
And she goes, will you fellas come down to L.A.? I'm going to be in L.A. next week. I'd be happy to introduce you to some folks. I'm like, yeah. thanks, Susan. So like, all right, Kurt, let's do it. All right, we'll just leave tomorrow morning. And so we got in the van and we gassed it up and we drove and drove and drove from Olympia to like somewhere in central California. And we just yeah. could, we got tired and we were in a van. And so we just conked out and slept, you know, got up, went to the bathroom at the gas station or whatever and kept driving. Then we got into uh, L.A. and we met up with, well, we stayed at this, some dive on the Sunset Boulevard, like the Saharan or something. Yeah. This pre-grunge, that's like glam, yeah. glam, uh, L.A. In the to, 80s glam. Yeah, right? 80s glam. Yeah, and they had all those magazines and those bands would sell tickets because you'd have to pay to play. So we weren't part of that scene at all. Speaking of pay to play, because it became stay away. And stay away, <laughs> yeah, pay to play because we did thumb through those magazines and it just wasn't. I actually have one of those magazines from like 1989, 1990, the Sunset Strip scene. Yeah. <clears throat> it's all forgotten. But it's wild that you guys have written a song and basically, because a lot of the bands were, that was the kind of the protest and the opinion of it, that it was, a, it was a, really like a lame policy that the clubs would have. The, you know, they would put the pressure on the bands to sell it. We know? were, and I was walking by this, Kurt and I were walking by this club called Gazari's, and in the parking lot was that Mr. Gazari, he like wore a fedora, he was like the impresario of the club. And he was speaking to Sam Kinison. And then, like, Kurt and I noticed that. But I, one of the things is, like, I'm the only person alive from that moment. Like, Kurt and Gazari and Sam Kinison are all gone. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. So we went to, like, we met with Susan down there, and we met folks. We met this person, Alan, Alan Mintz. Yeah. And so we met him, and then we went, we met the A&R man for Alice in Chains. Uh, we met some other folks, and Susan's like, you know, it's really a small world down here with, you know, the music industry is just, just not, there's only so many labels, and so we met some folks and got some introductions, and then that was it, and we just left. Instead of staying on the Sunset Boulevard, we went to San Francisco. We just, it's a three, four-hour drive from L.A. We went to go see our buddies, uh, Buzz and Dale, and Lori, the Lorax, was in the band at the time. And um, so we were hanging out with the Melvins, and there was uh, this show over in North Beach, and it was uh, Scream was playing, which is seminal. Great DC hardcore band. DC yeah. hardcore band. So we went to go see Scream. had this great drummer, and uh, I, I think I struck up a conversation with Dave, and then Kurt was just kind of quiet, and that was me. I was just, like, jabbering away. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it was a great show, and those goodbye, see you later. And Kurt and I left, and the next day we drove up the coast. We drove up 101. Just look at the scenery. Look at the scenery, just took it easy. Talk. Yeah, because we bombed down the I-5, so we thought yeah. we'd go up the coast, cross, cross Golden Gate Bridge, you know, yeah. 101. And um, I still live, I live basically on 101. <laughs> yeah, go back and forth, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I live on 101. Better, yeah, I guess better than the 405 yeah. on a traffic day. Oh, yeah, 405 <laughs> or I-5, whatever. Yeah. And then I, um, what did we do? So we made it back to Tacoma, Olympia. Well, then Buzz calls. 
this is like maybe a week later. Buzz, Buzz, Buzz of course, at Melvin's. And the Melvin's, he's like, hey, did you hear what happened to Scream? I'm like, well, no. He goes, well, they made it down to L.A. and things just fell apart. And so he goes, you should call that drummer because he wants to get out of that situation. And so I called him. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, man, our, our bass player Skeeter just quit. And um, we're, we're broke. We can't, we, and uh, we're living at the Stahl's brother's sister had a house in North Hollywood that she was renting. And she's like a stripper, you know? So Pete and Franz is a brother, you said. <clears throat> Pete and Franz are brother, yeah. brothers. They're yeah. nice people. And then they're like, and then she wasn't paying her rent. And the landlord came and took the front door off the house. Okay. That's not the first story where I've heard that. You know, that happened to the Chili Peppers, too, and they lived in there. Fleet Anthony and Bob Forrest from Thelonious Monster actually lived in a house for a month after that with no doors on it. That's <laughs> a, I, don't, I guess that's a tactic what landlords do when you don't pay rent because there's yeah. all kinds of rules and laws about tenants and landlords. Yeah. So there's, what you know, there's like a lot of hoops to, to jump through. There's like renter's rights and... But I guess there's there's no nothing that says you, that the landlord can't take the front door off the house. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and and so, uh, well, come on up. He goes, I come on up. And so I think he borrowed money from his mom. He made the box for the drums and first he had this big Tama yellow Tama set with like a 26 inch kick. We really liked that big, it's a real simple trap set, but big drums. He was like, he was into Dale Crover and John Bonham. Yeah. And um, he made like the crate himself, and we went and picked him up, and we started to rehearse, and you know, and what were some of the first songs you did with Dave when you got together with Stuff Off Bleach? Just our repertoire. We yeah. were doing all kinds of tunes, and yeah. Again, we just started rehearsing, 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 and Kurt and Dave lived in this apartment in Olympia that was just a hellhole. I just couldn't believe it how just gross that place was cigarette butts everywhere anyway and we played we played some gigs in olympia we you know because you could make like 1500 bucks because we were a draw so that would be like you know we'd split it three 500 bucks a piece yeah and it's so cheap to live the way we lived we didn't have any debts you know yeah we had a van and we can just drive you know yeah where, let's go to L.A. Let's just drive in the van. Why wouldn't have money for a plane ticket? Gas is cheap, you know. Yeah. And when, then we started, you know, with Dave. That's when Kurt brought all these songs to the band. Like, here's a song in bloom. Well, no, we had that with Chad. No, it was the, the songs were like, what were the songs we did? We did like On a Plane. On a Plane's great. Smells Like Teen Spirit. Were you with Kurt when he saw that expression written on the wall in that club? No, I, it was in Kurt's bedroom. It was yeah. Kathleen Hannah. Hannah. Kathleen Hannah wrote, wrote, they got out of their minds drinking cheap wine, and she like wrote Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on the bedroom wall. And then I, I remember going over there and seeing that, and I'm just like, Jesus, you guys had a tied one on, didn't you? <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and so... He had this riff, and it was, you know, he's like, and so he's doing that over, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute. 
why don't we slow this thing down? Like, and so I started going, and Dave's like, and then we just started alternating between that, and then we threw a bridge in there. And that was it. it and then the song was done. <laughs> it was like, it was longer. It was longer. And so we started, you know, then we just folded that into the repertoire. People liked the song. Uh, we were getting wined and dined by labels. All these A&R men wanted to sign us. And we, it was Kim Gordon who called me. From Sonic, Sonic Youth. Youth. Yeah, she's like, you should sign a Geffen. So I said, hey, fellas, I talked to Kim Gordon. She said, we should sign a Geffen. So we, that's why we did it. And we got a deal. And we went to L.A. And we recorded this record. In Van Nuys at Sound City. In which, Van Nuys and Sound City. And Dave's doing a documentary now on that studio and bought that board you guys recorded it on, you know? Yeah. Which is amazing. And that had a great the, 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 the live room in there had a great sound, didn't it? Yeah, that place was like a dump. It was like on its last legs, and it was probably going to close. And we recorded Nevermind, and it was a hit record. And so then all these bands wanted to record there. Yeah, it resurrected. The whole it, it gave him like another twenty years because originally, you know, obviously, Damn the Torpedoes was recorded there by Petty and. Uh, Fleetwood Cheater, Mac, Heaven Tonight, Fleetwood, Heaven Tonight, yeah, Fleetwood Mac Rumors, yeah, a lot of stuff was recorded there. Great Dio, yeah, yeah. It was, if you walk, uh, if you walk the, the gold records around the wall, they were very interesting. It was cool, and you would barbecue outside in that tarmac there, like on the yeah. Side, there was know? like this barbecue, but it wasn't a, like a sexy place. Yeah, it was not by any means, but it, but it had magic in a sense. I mean, you know, and you guess the musicians brought the magic like you guys did, but the record sounded great. This is the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Tell me the story about how they only printed up 50,000 copies because they didn't think they were going to sell any copies and never mind, of course. Well, that was their decision, the, <laughs> the label people. And uh, I don't even think we knew how much they were going to print up. They decided we're going to print up 50,000 copies and we're going to go tour and we're going to get played on Sunday nights on the radio and... You know, if we sell 50,000, it'll be gold, and we'll work on our next record. Okay. We were guaranteed two records, but they could still shelf you. You know what I mean? If they yeah. thought. Yeah, they, they could say, they could even record it. If they don't like the second record, you know how they labels are. They just don't release it. They just don't put it out. Or yeah. It's such uh, a soft launch, there's five copies. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. So they thrown against the wall, like cook seeds, the spaghetti's cooked. And if you stick, you get, you keep going. If you yeah. don't stick, then you're done. So many bands were ground up by that. That's a bad thing about the major labels. I can go a lot of time. And then, of course, after you guys became the phenomenon that you were with Nirvana. They were signing anything that's even remotely sounded like you guys and throwing even more stuff against they the They destroyed wall. so many good bands. Yeah, by, by, by getting them away from their original. Well, they, they, and then it was like you were shelved or you were dropped. And so there was that stigma. So, like these promising bands that were like, I'm trying to remember. You know, like, there were so many. There were so we many. And yeah, <laughs> and it's like, you know what was going on, and that was really bad. Like, and it was just cold hard business, you know. Yeah. Like, what was it? Pink Floyd made. Uh, they made seven records before Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Well, let's. You not. couldn't do that. Like. Yeah. Uh, back then, and now it's even worse because now yeah. there's no, there's very little artist development. So I always say, would Springsteen have done Born to Run? Would Aerosmith have done Toys in the Attic as their third album, those third records? And yeah. So many bands who didn't really discover who they were, or find their sound, go grow into their sound to their third record. So. Um, and the labels would stick by the stick by them. Yeah. 
Yeah. And just let them, be, you know, and eventually it would pay off or the, it wouldn't. You know, or it most wouldn't, of the time yeah. it would. And, you know, it's it just, it, it's pretty cool. I think it was the A&R people and the labels were more about music. And then it was, again, it was business. Yeah. And it's just like. But where were you when you found out that Nevermind was, It Smells Like Teen Spirit was rolling up the charts and wow. exploding? Oh, well, we were number one. We were in Oregon, Salem, Oregon, which was neat because there was a lot of people, family came down. It was a Salem Armory. And so we were close to home. And then we got a, a letter, uh, fax or some note from John Silva, our manager, and said, congratulations, your record's number one. It's like, Wow. When Smells Like Teen Spirits went to number one on the on the modern rock charts, right? Yeah, yeah. And, the, yeah. and then the album was number one album, and it just was flying out the door. Yeah, they didn't, you know, they they pressed 50,000 copies, and the record was a phenomenon. But you got to remember, with, like, rock music, it was, like, there was there was no rock music in the top ten for a long time. You guys Previous. Me, yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys really kicked down the door for that. It had been, you know, it was mostly pop or R&B at that period of time. Yeah. And, and then, then, I mean, it really knocked things down. Kicked down the door. It was like a bulldozer. Yeah, and <laughs> it was like a, it was a new wave of rock music came in. But that, that was, there's precedence for that. You know, yeah. people just kind of like, you know, punk rock came in or the new, you know, new sounds and music is reinterpreted. It's uh, reinvented. And it people start dancing again. Yeah. What was what was what was yours and Dave's and Kurt's initial reaction when you found out you had a number one album? Wow, it was it was unbelievable because again, <sighs> I mean, there's always been said that Kurt was, would have been happy selling 100,000 records like the you know the Pixies or Sonic Youth had done at that point. Yeah, but Kurt would say one thing and then he'd say another thing soon after like he kind of he wanted to be in a famous big rock band but then he didn't want it and so it was kind of a lot of conflicts there but you know it, a part of it was like it goes back to the punk rock days and just being anti-social and being part of this subculture and then to have this number one record was really weird like all like all these mainstream people were like really into our band so because we were always sheltered and outcasts or whatever and so it was it was strange and it was strange to be recognized to be famous all of a sudden and then all of a sudden these people are coming out of nowhere they want to borrow money they want to you have all these friends and who think you're supposed to take them along with you and you you owe them something yeah like you take them entitlement. with you uh, you have these <laughs> and, new friends and they get uh, resentful some of the old ones that don't understand it's just it's complicated and <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden you're famous and uh there's a there's so many things and just about then all i can just i'll just fast forward to 1994 and then just kurt died yeah, it was too much. I mean, I mean, and let's talk about in Italy when when Kurt OD'd that time. Um, I mean, were you, I mean, you and David would be extremely concerned, and just everybody at that period of time. <sighs> you know, it was. I try to say say things. I just didn't. You know, he made his own decisions. Kurt was stubborn, and uh, you know, and it, again, it's that smack. It's the heroin. It's really powerful, and it had a big big grip on him because I told Kurt not to do heroin and I said look at like um, Andy Wood look what happened to him or Will Shatter and Flipper like he was the base one of the bass players in Flipper <clears throat> and there's this other this other fellow um, Ian 
who was in the part of the Olympia scene, they all died around the same time. I think some like the drug dealer student cut the heroin, and so they got like. It's way too strong at that period of time. Well, that whatever that load the gangs brought in or whatever, you know, this is all like criminal world. They didn't cut it, I guess, and then they they shot up this heroin and they killed them because it was powerful. And that happens, you know. They're yeah. used to like shooting up a certain dose, and then the gangsters didn't cut it. You'd think they would cut it so they could. Be more profitable. Be more profitable, but they didn't. So anyway, so Kurt told me he did heroin. I said, don't do it. It's like, you're playing with dynamite. He's like, yeah, you're right. But he loved it. He really liked it. And then look what happened. And yeah, it was power. It's powerful. It changes people. And then once I'm, I wasn't, there were other people in Seattle who were into heroin and I wasn't. So then there was a, you know what I mean? I just didn't fit in. I'm not going to hang out. I just didn't hang out with junkies. Yeah. It wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. They have their own world. They're, it's kind of like, a va- they're vampires. Like yeah, it's, it's a different weird. subculture of another subculture. Oh, yeah, and it's it's pretty intense, you know, and you can see there's a, it takes a physical toll. You can, see, like, I've never seen heroin. We were watching this film, Rainbow Bridge, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. and these hippies, they bring these surfboards in from the mainland, and they cut the surfboards open, and they take out all this, like, white powder, and I thought it was like hash or something. I go, why do they? Why are they smoking hash when there's all this pot, Maui Wowie, you know? And yeah. they're like, the, it was Kurt and somebody else was there. They looked at me like, you dipshit, that's heroin, <laughs> yeah. because they were smoking the heroin. The hippies were. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just naive, whatever. It just, I just, I've never seen heroin, but I've seen people on it, and it's like. It's it's powerful. You see their eyes got these big pupils, you know, and the skin gets all blotchy, and they're just kind of, you know, nocturnal creatures. And it just wasn't for me. And then it, it took its toll. Yeah. And that's it. It's a story that's been repeated too many times. Were so. you in Seattle uh, at that period of time when when you found out about Curtis? Stuff? I was in Deep River when I found out about it, and I was just like, then I saw it on CNN, and I got really upset, and. Um, but I just had to deal with it. So, you know, that's just the way it's cruel. Yeah. It's cruel but when death is – because death doesn't take back. Yeah. It's cruel. No exceptions. Yeah. As much as you beg and plead that you can change and turn things around, no. Yeah. It's no. very final. No. That's how death is. It's a hard ass. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Just you guys coming up together. Um through that whole period and and the you know I mean how many I mean you know you know how many bands you influence and you, and you influence people because of that DIY thing bringing it back and that was the thing about the punk rock ethic to begin with influence so many people to pick up an instrument because they could do it too they're like you know and that that's got to be one of the satisfying things about what you did with the band besides the great music that you made was that you inspired a lot of people to pick up a bass or guitar I know that's the thing it's like People got inspired about music and they were making music and everybody tells me, you know, I get so many people like, oh, my God, Nirvana saved my life. It's why I started playing music. And for me, that's also a good opportunity to remember Kurt and just like that. I was chalking up for him on that one, you know, because he had a strong artistic vision. Again, you know, those early days, he's a great artist. He was talented. He was just a talented uh he was an artist he was it was no shtick it was no pose i mean he was really had that 
ability, this natural ability to make this art. And it was warped and <laughs> weird. I keep, now I'm thinking about Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. Yeah, Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. <laughs> it was warped and weird, but it was done well, you know? And, yeah. And... Um, that's <laughs> <laughs> no, funny bringing it back. I've got to tell you something because I've never told you, you know, uh, when we talked. I was in Aberdeen once for an MTV promotion, maybe Metallica, somebody in Aberdeen. Oh, yeah, Metallica played the bowling alley. Yeah, they did, and I was there, you know, and I was I was supposed to be hiding in town at the one little hotel because they didn't want, they, they would, if they saw me up there, the people would know that they were the ones who won. Was it like show. a red line in? Yeah. That was yeah. next door to where Nirvana rehearsed. I know, yeah, yeah. which is amazing when yeah. you think about it. So yeah. I was there, and I knew all that stuff. And here's the crazy thing. The local sheriff or police chief, Gave me copies of yours and Kurt's mugshots. Oh, that bastard! <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? He's like, Matt, I think you would like these. And of course, I kept them to myself. But I was like, it's you guys when you're like pimply faced teenage kids. What was that arrest for at the time? Do you oh, remember? <laughs> I got arrested for something stupid. Oh, these rednecks were giving me grief, and I yeah. told them to go shove it. And they wanted to beat me up, and then I was stupid and yelled at them in front of the cops when I should have just been quiet. So they took your mugshots for that. Yeah, and then we were doing some graffiti <laughs> in Aberdeen on the alleys, just yeah. writing some things, and these cops. I jumped in this dumpster and closed the lid, and the cop car drove by, but they caught Kurt, and they arrested him for the graffiti. Yeah. We've all been through that stuff when we were kids. Yeah, I was that. just – like they – yeah, like – because there was this weird graffiti in Seattle at the time. Like we go to punk rock uh, – gigs and at the time there was this weird graffiti in seattle kissinger killed moro and somehow that there was this uh, italian politician who was murdered who was abducted by these terrorists and was like murdered and then henry kissinger was uh, the secretary of state under the nixon administration so i'm like what is and it was all over seattle kissinger killed moro and so then i wrote this thing in downtown aberdeen <laughs> It's just stupid. Uh, Nixon uh, Nixon killed Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did Kurt write stuff to, or was it just your graffiti? It, well, I wrote God is Gay. Yeah. And then, uh, what did, what did Kurt, I don't remember what Kurt. But you guys were just having fun writing crazy statements. It was to piss off the neighbors. stupid. <laughs> it was just like markers. And it wasn't like a big tag with like. Yeah. It was just like a little marker. Like, it was stupid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, I don't know. The cops were bored. We were bored. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on in Aberdeen, yeah. let's be honest. and we weren't, I don't know, <laughs> and it was in the alley. It was like right next to a dumpster. Like so we it wasn't like it was like where everybody's driving by and their children are going to see it. It was Yeah, <laughs> so we, and we were, I don't know. You guys were, at that point, what were you, 15, 16? How old were you when, when that was done? 14 even, maybe. Uh, I think we were adults. We were like 18. Oh, you were 18, okay. Yeah, yeah. we were adults. Oh, okay, yeah. Wow, you, it's amazing. I have them somewhere. Like I have them somewhere in, in like one of my storage units. But I just like thought I had. To, I was wanting to tell you that over all this. Time. You can put it in your book. You can put them. Yeah, <laughs> it's, they're, they're so cool. They're classics. I mean, uh, and you know, hey, everybody, you know, you, you would always do do crazy stuff when you were kids, running around and doing things. And even, no, you know. But so uh, let me let's talk about the, the political stuff that you're doing. Because I feel that, uh, you know, it starts with that erotic music law. You saw what was happening in Washington State. Was that the first thing that made you decide that you wanted to rally people together? Because they were trying to stop artistic freedom. Yeah, it was like, 
if you're just affecting me, I'm like, what is this deal? You know, like the erotic music law. So this prosecutor in any county in the state could deem something harmful to minors. And it was found that attorneys killed it ultimately with it. It was unconstitutional because it was a restriction. And and, um, the state Supreme Court threw it out. Oh, and you know what the case was? What? Eikenberry versus Soundgarden. Or Soundgarden versus Eikenberry, I think it was. One of the was that because of like um, big dumb sex or something? No, the Ken Eikenberry was the state attorney general and then Soundgarden was the plaintiff. So they had the standing in the case. Oh, I didn't because I mean, were they, well, let me ask you the question. I mean, because was it because of their song subjects? I don't, I haven't. It's been so long since I've seen yeah. it. I think it was just kind of a just like to go against them because they were like the most represented band. At the yeah, time. they got they got Soundgarden was they stood up for everybody and took, fought the good fight for us all. Those guys are the best. Yeah, they're the best. And so then the <laughs> judges said that absolutely because you could have some crusading prosecutor in some little county in Washington declare things harmful to minors, and it was just it wasn't a good. It was so anti music. So we started to to uh, identify pro-music people who were like music fans. Dow Constantine, he's the King County executive now. He was running for his first state house race in West Seattle, and he was in a primary, and he needed uh, one last mailer to, before the ballots went out. And so we went and we raised this money for him, and he bought the media, and he mailed these ads, and he, he credits that. He credits his winning the election because because if he won the primary, he was a shoo-in for the general because it's a de- heavily Democratic district. And um, he got into the uh, legislature, and then he was uh, he went to the University of Washington Law School. And so he was made the chair. No, at the time it was co-chair of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, which these types of legislation would yeah. go through, and the chairs could kill any bill. Yeah. So see how it works, and so like, oh, so that's our—he's our secret weapon there. So you can get him in there to, to, to get get this ridiculous. Yeah. Thing no out more to lawsuits. Swallow. No more crusading or or you know fighting this. It's just like we just killed it. That's great. Now tell me about Jam Pack, which is uh, the organization. Yeah, the Jam Pack was—it's defunct, okay? And it was like in. Explain what the, what the what Jam Pack is the abbreviation for. It's as well. the Joint Artist and Music Promotions Political Action Committee, and again, it was a pack, you know. And then people, when you have a group of people, it's a collective voice, and so it was a music industry fans, people in the business, and bands, you know. And uh, that's just how politics works: is you need to build coalitions, and you need to have a message. And we had a proactive message. We weren't against things; we were for freedom of expression we were for opportunities for music for people of all ages we had a positive message and it resonated with a lot of people and it was good you know seattle music was uh world worldwide i mean it's iconic and so you get these legislators who go on uh, some trip like we just came back from australia and they were everybody was asking us about grunge music and it's like yeah and so why do you have this bad law yeah. <laughs> you know i mean they're like yeah you know what you're right and so we worked it out with like, you know, a lot of it had to do with just regulating alcohol, which is a powerful drug. And we just said, we're not in the alcohol business. We're in the music business and you have to regulate alcohol. And they realized that like, oh. It's two separate things. Yeah, it's two separate things. Like, yeah, well, we would expect you to 
you know, cite somebody who's selling alcohol to a minor. That's your job. And they're like, oh, it is. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, it is our job. They knew that, but it's just like, we're not a, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like. All of a sudden they realized, you know, that they were, it was almost like short circuiting mixed messages. Blaming yeah. It on, yeah. On the musicians. And that, that's the cause and the reason why minors are training. Yeah. That's not the responsibility. It's the responsibility of the establishment. We had <laughs> a, there was a poster ban in Seattle where you couldn't put posters up and we fought that and that went all, all the way to the state supreme court how did that turn out uh that was a speech deal yeah there were some good arguments made for that like you know the city could put up a poster doing for land use but you couldn't put up a poster opposing the land use you know what i mean yeah exactly so but then i it's we're not going to get into it but you and duff mckagan of course you know um we're both involved, but both wrote for Seattle Weekly. Did columns, yeah, we did columns for Seattle Weekly. Well, I was invited to do a column. I did a column for two and a half years, Seattle Weekly, and I just kind of covered culture, music, and politics. And my politics are like I'm an independent, and I like I'm really tired of like partisanship. It's just so cliche, and it dehumanizes us because I I know conservative people that are really neat people and we, we don't agree on politics but there's things that we connect with and so we see each other's humanity so why does politics have to just be so nasty I think I know why because it's, it's a lot of it's a shtick it's a it's entertainment and it's just kind of red meat and it sells people yeah. like that and people like we were talking earlier about people don't be being closed-minded about music and yeah. being closed-minded about like you know, ideologies or philosophies or policies and it's just like some things you're not going to agree on, which is fine, but that doesn't mean you have to dehumanize somebody. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I get really tired of all the, yeah. the mud and, then, and, and it's like some and digging up the stupid things that don't have anything to do with what the real issues are. Uh, and the things <laughs> get settled, you know, and you just battle it out in the legislature, the city council and, you know, and that's where you do it and then the session adjourns or whatever just go home and i don't know yeah. relax and listen to a record or something yeah like, don't that's what i get all wrapped up <laughs> get wrapped up in all these politics it's crazy people just get obsessed with it or they're crusading you know yeah now i want to ask you this track that you, you i know that sound city is a project that people will see soon dave girl is working on a documentary on the studio where you where you did got a lot of musicians together to interview each other and some performances. When will we see? Uh, is, is that going to be a surprise? Or Ask you... Dave. I mean, he's working on this film. He got the board from Sound City, that Neve board that Nevermind yeah. was recorded on, and all these other great records. I'm going to talk to him about it. Yeah, because yeah. we, we did. He and I did talk about it last time I was visiting him in the studio. Yeah, I hosted that Bob Mould tribute night and. Uh, Bob brought me out to do that, and the rehearsals were all over at, at yeah. 6.06. So, yeah, ask, ask Dave about it. That's yeah. kind of his gig. I was invited to do it. It was amazing. It, yeah, and it's good. So, And it was that fun getting together with Dave and Butch, Butch Vig again. Absolutely. It always is, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Move forward. We know each other, you know. I jammed with the Melvins last year, and again, like when you play with musicians you've never played with, you got to get to know each other. And kind then, of but, dynamic, right? Yeah, but we knew each other, so it was you know, each other forever. I mean, yeah. there's so many ways yeah, they're just, indirectly yeah. responsible it's for some like, of the things. We just that started happened. playing together. It's like oh, I know these guys. You know, how about their version of "Going Blind" by Kiss? That was oh cool. yeah, wasn't Going that great? Blind, yeah, <laughs> really hotter than hell. Because we yeah. both love that. Now, one of the things you've been going around the country and letting people know about and and talking to people about is is the Fair Voting Act, 
right. Fair Vote, which is the organization. <clears throat> Explain that to everybody for your fans and people so they can look deeper into I, it. I started working with Fair Vote in the late 1990s when I was advocating these music issues. I recognized these big flaws in our voting and our democracy. And I could see why people are so cynical and people are disconnected and they feel like their vote doesn't matter. Your vote's counted. They'll count your vote. But it seems like – and then the same old insiders win the election. It's just uh, uh, the uh, same old interests or, or – Special interest groups special who put interest. all their money into certain areas that are swing, swing states and all swing Yeah, swing counties. states and swing districts and just kind of like – it's frustrating and it doesn't seem very inclusive. So – I started working with this group, Fair Vote, the Center for Voting and Democracy, and uh, I discovered that in the United States we can do things like proportional voting. We're calling it fair voting. Like in Europe, they don't have a lot of countries don't have single member districts. They just have the whole country's a district, or they have like you know multi member districts, and so where everybody gets a share of the representation. So. In Europe, you like vote for a party, and if that you know, the party needs to get like two or three, four percent of the vote, and they get a seat, so everybody wins. It's not winner take all. It's just like, okay, well, we could do that in the United States, but our version of that kind of voting, proportional voting, is different. It's like the primaries thing. Kind of well, thing, it's right? kind of like. And when you vote in Europe, you like vote for a party or they'll have like an open list, okay? And in, in the United States versions of this proportional voting, you vote for a candidate. It's candidate-based. And then we're in like Euro versions are like 2 3% of the vote, 4% to get elected. In the United States, like 25%. But see, so we have this fair voting plan right now. And if you look at a state like Louisiana, where there's six U.S. House districts, okay, so the insiders and the operators, they got to draw the maps for the state, and they made five Republican districts, and they made one Democratic di district because of the Voting Rights Act, which is basically African-American majority-minority district, okay? So if you're black in Louisiana and you live in that district, you get representation. But if you live any, anywhere in any, any of these other districts, you're stuck in a Republican district. Massachusetts is has nine uh, districts, okay? And it's like 40% Republican, maybe a little more. They, they elected Mitt Romney for governor, uh, Brown for senator. They elect Republicans, okay? But if you look at the congressional map, it's all nine seats are Democratic, okay? And so the fair voting plan takes a different approach to representation for the United States House of Representatives. So instead of having, like in Massachusetts, instead of having nine individual districts, there's nine seats, but there'd be three districts with three seats each, okay? And it just it depends on how you do the ballot, and there would be like – in every district, there'd be at least one Republican, okay? Because they make up 40% of the seats, 40% of the vote, then that merits enough to elect one seat. So every, everybody shares representation, okay? In Louisiana, uh, there's six districts, so there'd be two. The fair voting plan has two districts. 
two three-member districts. So this is really about reform and, and mobilizing it's, people. It's reform and mobilizing people, and it's about breaking up the monopoly these uh, insiders have on the on the elections. It's really unhealthy. Okay, and so how do you, like how how do these systems work? Well, one of the versions. One of the ways you can do it's called cumulative voting. Okay, so if you ha- if you you live in a three member district, you get three votes because it's one person one vote. So every voter gets three votes to fill one of those seats. But then this is where it gets sophisticated, and this is where it takes the sophistication away from the insiders who cook these single member districts up, and it puts it in the hands of the voters. You as a voter could d- decide how to cast your vote. Like saying, I really like her, and I'm going to give her all three of my votes. Or you can say, I like her, I'm going to give her two votes, and I'm going to give him one vote. You you can decide how to spend it. Okay, So that's the power. The voters have that power. Special interests spend money on elections. The voters have this ballot that gives – you could – decide how to cast your vote, how to spend your vote, okay? And there's a lot of power in that. And so what, what happens is it has a proportional effect. You'll get uh, people will plump their vote. Like all the Republicans will likely give their three votes to the Republican in the district, and he or she will get elected. Yeah. And that's the person who represents them. But you still get three, you get three representatives in Congress, not just one. So if you're con- you contact the person you're most comfortable with who you have the best rep, or you can contact all three, or contact two, or, or whatever. This is legal in the United States, okay? And it's been a long-standing voting. There's there's other ways of doing it too. It's just kind of making the ballot a little little more sophisticated, and it just gives voters power. So like every seat is uh, everybody gets uh, representation. You don't have these like safe seats that are turn out to be these partisan gerrymanders there's a book right now called it's even worse than it looks and they're these that's uh, a great title by yeah the way. <laughs> yeah and these longtime political scholars um thomas mann and norm ornstein and they go i recommend this book and they talk about why congress is so dysfunctional and they target what the issues are but then they go into solutions and one of the solutions they recommend is proportional voting fair voting and so, yeah, and then you would have a Republican, like if you had it in New York, you would have a Republican coming out of uh, Manhattan, or and you'd have uh, um, Democrats coming out of rural districts. And so, see how the bipartisan dynamic works. And so, like the Republican would be like, "Well, I've got these city issues. I'm not just representing farmers, right? Where I'm representing these urban folks who have these city issues, and so they work together." There's a, there was a the system was used in Illinois from like for a hundred years up until 1980, and they got caught up in this like populist revolt. And they they should have never threw it out, but it was this kind of anti-government kind of thing. And um, there was a study done by the Illinois Assembly like 12 years ago. They did this report, and they looked at this cumulative voting because that's how they had it in Illinois. And they had like they'd have Republicans coming out of the city, at least one, and they'd have at least one Democrat coming out of like rural areas. And the study showed that there was um, less partisanship in the legislature; it was less polarized. And that's how it works. Okay, yeah. so these Republicans, like I've got these city issues, you know, 
And yeah. uh, and then the Republicans have somebody to, to vote for. Demo- same with Democrats, too. Like if you're stuck in a – in my district, I'm pretty much stuck in a Republican district. And I tend to vote Democratic, though I'm an independent. And I'm not complaining about my, my representative in Congress. But I, I would like to have a ballot where I could exp- express my choices yeah. like that. And so that's what fair voting does. I mean, it's rooted in scholarship and court precedent. It's constitutional. And it's, it's an old – these are old systems, okay? They're tried and true, but it's kind of a new way of looking at politics because we're saying we don't accept that this is the best that politics is going to get. Okay, it's time for reforms because indeed things are worse than they look. I agree. I mean, so hence that title, which is true. Yeah. How do people get more information, Chris? And- you can go to fairvote.org, F A I R V O T E.org, and look up and uh, get involved. I think it's a great Yeah, thing. just get involved, and that's what I do. I'm the chair of the group, and um, we work also like on a national popular vote that voting for. Uh, President, it's working with the Electoral College, but to make the the presidential election competitive in every state, not just six, yeah, a handful of states around the country. And uh, one of our efforts now we're ramping up is a right to vote in the United States Constitution. There's no right to vote, so that's why states and jurisdictions can do these voter suppression, like you know. Uh, uh, these registration schemes and and you know different yeah. different deals like they kind I mean, of disqualify and it's keep disqualifying it's a, it's partisanship is what yeah, it is it's really just is. changing like you're playing a game and all of a sudden you're raising the basketball hoop higher yeah. on this one side you know and it's just like so you can't score yeah you can't, you can't score yeah that's what it is and so if there was a right to vote then that would just nullify all these laws. Said yeah. no, you have a in the United States. If you're a citizen, you have the right to vote. Yeah. Well, I wish you all the best for that. Thanks, Chris. man. That's cool. But Chris, it's so good to have you in today, and Thanks, it's man. really great to talk to you. And um, so, is there anything else you'd like to part with before you head? Thank you, Matt, and people tuning into the podcast for listening, yeah. <laughs> listening to my spiel. No, I think it's great. I mean, we love to hear you. We love to hear you. You reflect on a lot of things that have happened and. Um, hey, thanks for all the great music, Krista. All right. Thanks for always being such a good guy. Ah. <laughs> you always are. Yeah. Nice guys growing trees. Yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> Chris Novoselich, everyone, on Thank the you. podcast. It's Matt Pinfield. Thanks for listening. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.